on the sermon note sheet in your bulletin on the other side of the corporate confession of faith, you should find the four questions that I've been working with in these past few messages. But before we continue our survey into the book of Exodus, let us do a quick review of last week's message. Last week we looked at Exodus chapters 2, 3, and the first 17 verses of chapter 4. In chapter 2 we read about the birth of Moses and how his mother hid him for the first three months of his life, but when it was no longer possible for her to prevent the Egyptians from discovering him and putting him to death, she got an idea for a plan to protect him. I told you why I thought that the Holy Spirit gave her every detail of this plan, and for at least two reasons. First, because of how close by she had Miriam, his older sister, hide. She was close enough so that she could see the look on Pharaoh's, the, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's face when she opened the basket. She could clearly see her reaction, and it was fairly obvious that this detail was planned out and staged very carefully. Secondly, because only the Holy Spirit could move upon the heart of Pharaoh's daughter and make her take pity on the baby Moses when her, when her father's strict orders were that every Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the Nile River, either to drown or to become crocodile food. I also told you about the insightful generalization that Donald Gray Barnhouse made about this story and how he contrasted it with the story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah paid ship fare to go to Tarshish, but, but he never got to Tarshish, nor did he get his money back that he paid to get aboard the ship. Barnhouse, Barnhouse stated his generalization this way, when you don't do things God's way, you never get to where you wanted to go, yet you pay your own bills along the way. But when you do things God's way, you get to where you wanted to go, and God pays the bills. The point was, this, Pharaoh's daughter ended up paying Moses' mother to rear and nurture her son, which was the very thing she wanted to do all along. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, we see Moses at the age of 40 years old. Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, so he killed him. When Pharaoh found out, he wanted Moses dead, so Moses fled into the desert, and the Holy Spirit guided him to a well in Midian. Moses helped the daughters of the priests of Midian's father, the priests of Midian, water their father's flock. And in that act of sticking up for those who were being bullied, we saw once again Moses' great disdain for injustice. When the ladies got home early, their father asked why they were home early, and they, and then asked where was the man who had helped them, and why they didn't offer him hospitality. Apparently, someone went back for Moses, and the priest of Midian not only fed him, but offered him a job, a place to stay, and one of his daughters as a wife. Zipporah bore Moses a son, and Moses named him Gershom, which meant, which meant I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, in the Hebrew language. Then, in the first part of verse 23, we read, During those many days which told us that another 40 years had passed. From the end of verse 23 through verse 25, we learned that the Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead had died, 
but that the new Pharaoh had not been any kinder to the Israelites than the previous one had been. And, to quote in verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew that it was time to deliver the children of Israel from their oppression in Egypt. We then moved into Exodus chapter 3, where we saw Moses tending Jethro's flock. Moses, Moses led the flock westward to the backside of the desert, which brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. Then in Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. What really caught Moses' attention was the fact that the bush itself was, did not appear to be on fire, which is why it wasn't being consumed. And that is why Moses referred to it as this great sight. Never having seen anything like that before in his life, God knew that it would surely get his attention. And so, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he, God, said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I reminded you that in the holiness of God, R.C. Sproul observed that every encounter between God and man from Genesis chapter 3 onward, that the immediate reaction of us humans when confronted by God is one of fear or terror. That's why Adam and Eve hid from God in the Garden of Eden. We fear God because although we suppress our knowledge of the truth about ourselves and our sinfulness, we still know that we have committed cosmic treason against him and that he is the one and only eternally powerful holy divinity to whom we must give an account for our every thought, word, and deed and that his death warrant against us is completely justified, and that there is nothing we can do to evade the death sentence that looms over us. So Moses, being terrified of God, he hid his face from him. Then in verses 7 through 10, God told Moses how he had seen the affliction of his people, and how he was ready to deliver them and bring them back to the land of Canaan, and that he would send Moses to tell Pharaoh, to let my people go. Well, to Moses, this seemed like a fate worse than death. The last place Moses wanted to go was back to Egypt, and the last person Moses wanted to confront was the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Then we saw Moses make one excuse after another for himself. Obviously, God didn't know that Moses wasn't the right man for the job. From verse 11 of chapter 3 through verse 17 of chapter 4, Moses made excuses and God answered them until he finally told Moses, enough, you're going, no more argument. And the last verse 
and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So perhaps a bit dejectedly, Moses goes back to Jethro and asks for his permission to return to Egypt. But notice, he doesn't actually tell him the real reason he wants to go back. For he says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. First of all, we have to wonder if Moses told Jethro about his meeting with God at the base of Mount Sinai or not. From the text alone, it would appear that he did not. And perhaps that is not a surprise. Would Jethro have given his permission if Moses had told him that he heard God speaking to him from a bush that was on fire but was not being consumed by the fire? And then that this voice from the burning bush was sending him on a suicide mission? Maybe not. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Well, that is some release, relief. At least the Pharaoh that had a bounty on his head 40 years earlier wasn't still alive and looking to collect a scalp. In verse 20 we read, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Now this is clearly a summary, an overview of what was going to happen. But the thing that amazes me the most is people who insist that us humans have unhindered volitional autonomy have obviously not read much of the Old Testament, and especially not passages like this one or many others in the next few chapters of Exodus. For if they had rightly understood them, they couldn't still proclaim, I am the captain of my ship. We are each the masters of our own destiny. It is indeed sad that the descendants of Adam and Eve are able to suppress the truth so easily. But what should be even more alarming to us is the fact that even we, God's elect, his regenerate children, can and still do suppress aspects of the truth. We have this uncanny capacity to ignore the parts of God's law that we don't like. So it's easy for us to look down our nose at those who fail to see the depravity of man and the sovereignty of God which God has so clearly revealed in his word. But we must always remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So we're just as guilty of suppressing parts of the truth as the unregenerate are. 
Back to Exodus chapter 4. In verses 24 through 26, we see that Moses had apparently neglected his covenantal duty and was likely deathly ill or incapacitated by the wrath of God against his oversight. So his wife had to do his duty for him. And only then did God release the death grip he apparently had upon Moses. Another interesting fact, and one that we'll see that we don't see clearly here, but we'll see later, is that after this incident, Moses apparently sent Zipporah and the boys back to Midian. Because the next time we hear of them is when Jethro brings them to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 18. Perhaps it had become clear to Moses that this mission might be a bit too dangerous for having his wife and kids tag along on. Or, besides that, it might be too dangerous for him to have his wife, who had just excoriated him regarding the circumcision of their son. Either way, next in verse 27, the Lord told Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses, which he promptly does, and is happy to see his younger brother, just as God predicted in verse 14. Moses then told Aaron all that God told him to say to Pharaoh, and to the elders of Israel, and all of the signs that God commanded him to do. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The people believed, but only when they were given some hope that relief from their afflictions might soon be provided. They bowed their heads and they worshipped, but conditional worship, we shall see. Now, as we move into chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we read, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Request one, denial one. Not a good start to a high-level negotiation. Next move, Moses and Aaron. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their burdens. Request two, denial two. This is definitely not going well. Verses 6 through 9 read, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall, not, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. 
Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Well, on a horizontal plane of real-world interaction, this first appeal to Pharaoh went very badly. In fact, absolutely disastrously. In chapter 3, verse 19, God told Moses that Pharaoh would not let them go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And in the last part of verse 21 in chapter 4, God said, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. However, God failed to mention that Pharaoh would increase their burdens as a response to their merely asking for a little time off to go for a three-day festive retreat. In a bit, we shall see Moses' reaction and his reply to this turn of events. But for the moment, let us read between the lines, if you will, and try to take a peek at Pharaoh's thinking process, his decision-making, and his response to their request for a mini-vacation. If the people are listening to what Moses and Aaron are telling them, they obviously have spare time on their hands, which means that they are not being worked hard enough. They're idle. Therefore, I will give them additional work tasks to do to occupy their free time. If they have no spare time to listen to Moses and Aaron because they are too busy, perhaps that will drive these foolish notions from their heads. Notice also the reference that Pharaoh made to the message that Moses and Aaron had given to the children of Israel. He called it lying words. I am Pharaoh. I know everything that there is worth knowing. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Therefore, this message about some about some never-before-heard-of God allegedly telling these lowly, worthless people to go three days into the wilderness for some kind of party can only be lying words, designed to make them even more discontented with their living and working conditions. But I will teach them to be content where they are and to stop listening to such foolishness. This is your lot in life, you wretched Israelites. You are slaves, and slaves you shall continue to be. There is no escape for you. And don't even think about asking for time off to go party in the desert. I will make you regret the fact that you even listen to such foolishness by punishing you, by making your work even more burdensome. There, let that be a lesson to you. Somebody should have reported him to HR. Oh, wait, he was HR. Never mind. This man is just not, not just mean and cruel. He is, like his father, the father of lies, diabolically wicked. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? When things are bad... When the weak and the cowardly have managed to get into positions of power and are lording it over the opp- and oppressing the strong and the courageous, they will never, ever, ever 
give up their power voluntarily. And if they feel as though their position is being threatened by the oppressed, they will, if it is within their ability to do so, they will further oppress and tyrannize the vassals beneath them. After all, those people need to be taught a lesson. Remember, hatred and cruelty are an inescapable, infinite do loop. The more hateful you are, the more cruel you will be. And the more cruelly you act, the more hateful and fearful you will become. I had originally considered titling this message, Darkest Before the Dawn. As in the old adage, it's always the darkest before the dawn. And I say that because Satan is a strong man who keeps his captives in a fortified prison. When Christ came into the world to redeem his elect and to set them free from the devil's dungeon, Lucifer tried all the harder to keep his captives secured so that they could not escape from his clutches. There are no accounts of demonic possession in any of the Old Testament records. But at the time of Jesus and during the initial fulfillment of the Great Commission, we see many accounts of people being possessed and oppressed by demonic spirits. That's because the devil was doing everything that he could to hold on to his property. And so, in the same way that Pharaoh increased the burdens on the Israelites, the devil upped his level of oppression in an attempt to maintain his power and keep the elect from being set free from his cruel oppression. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, that would be Pharaoh, but he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Um, Moses, this isn't exactly what we had in mind when we agreed to let you go negotiate with Pharaoh on our behalf. You were supposed to be getting us out of slavery, not more deeply oppressed in our servitude. I venture to guess that if the reality TV show The Apprentice had been airing at this time, the children of Israel might have all shouted in unison to Moses, you're fired. Verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. See, God, I told you that I wasn't the right person for this job. You really should have listened to me. After all, I do know a thing or two. Now just look at what you've done. This is all your fault. Shame on you. The first question on the notes page 
of your bulletin reads, what was the subject of the message? The answer is, situations often get worse before they get better. Situations often get worse before they get better. Even when God is the mastermind behind and the orchestrator of the present campaign. In what we have covered today, from Exodus 4, verse 18, through the end of chapter 5, we find the following five lessons. Lesson number one, it is vitally important that we know God, that we understand him as far as humanly possible, and that we know what he expects and requires of us. Moses apparently thought that circumcision was not that big of a deal. Perhaps that it might even be optional. Sins of omission can be just as costly and sometimes even more costly than sins of commission are. Lesson two. The second lesson that we learn from what we covered today is this. God is not limited by time and his timing often surprises us. God may call us into service just like he did Moses when we are 80 years old. Therefore, we must always, always, always be ready to obey God and do what he calls us to do, no matter how young or old we are when the call comes. Lesson number three. The third lesson that we learned from what we've covered today is, when you embark on a campaign that God assigns you to, it may very well likely not only be impossible for us to accomplish alone in our own strength, with our own resources, and by our own designs and ingenuity, but the situation may get a lot worse before God demonstrates his almighty power and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. This is a very good reason for keeping a prayer journal and not only writing down all of your prayer requests, but also the answers which can be difficult since they often come many days, weeks, months, or even years after you've prayed the prayer. But in a certain sense, what we have in some parts of Scripture is a journal of the prayer requests of God's people in his record of how he answered those prayers. When trouble comes and we are fearful of what may happen next, reviewing our prayer journal can be an excellent way to reassure ourselves that our God answers prayer. And just as he has faithfully answered prayers that we have prayed in the past, so he will faithfully answer the prayers that we pray today and tomorrow and the day after that one too. Lesson number four. The fourth lesson that we learned from what we covered today is this. When our oppressors feel threatened, they will always, always, always seek to demoralize us and break our will to resist their tyranny by doubling down on their oppression of us. If the campaign that God has recruited you into is threatening to plunder even the least significant slave under his dominion, he will very likely bring every bit of trouble your way that he can muster because you are daring to try to steal some of his property. So, as James told us in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 of his epistle, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. Lesson number five. The fifth lesson that we learned from what we covered today is this. God was actually doing Moses a favor by engineering this first encounter with Pharaoh so that it ended so badly. God was shredding any last vestige of self-esteem that Moses might still have had in order that he could be more mightily used by God. God was making Moses die to himself so that he could live for others instead of for himself. In his message series on the life of Moses, entitled The Battle of Egypt, James Montgomery Boyce read a passage from F.B. Meyer's book entitled Moses, the Servant of God. In that book, Myers wrote, quote, Moses died to his self-esteem, to his castle building, to pride in his miracles, to the enthusiasm of his people, to everything a popular leader loves. And as he laid there on the ground before God, wishing himself back in Midian and thinking himself very badly treated, he was falling as a corn of wheat into the ground to die, no longer to abide alone, but to bear much fruit. As as long as we are full of ourselves, even in the seemingly most insignificant area of life, we are of no use to God. Let me repeat that. As long as we are full of ourselves and even the seemingly most insignificant area of life, we are of no use to God. We're useless. We're benched out of the game, sitting on the sidelines. We must die to ourselves to become useful in his service. The second question on the notes page of your bulletin and on the sermon outline, which I didn't give you one today, The second question on the notes page of your bulletin, what response did the message ask of me, is, I must evaluate myself and determine the following, my answers to the following five questions. And if you want these, since I didn't have an outline, ask me and I'll let you borrow this and copy them down later. Question number one, do I know what God requires of me, but do I ignore any of his requirements? Do I know what God requires of me, but do I ignore any of his requirements? Question number two, am I ready to do whatever God may call me to do, regardless of my age? Am I ready to do whatever God may call me to do, regardless of my age? Question number three, do I record my prayers and the way God answers them in my prayer journal? Do I record my prayers and the way God answers them in my prayer journal. Question number four, when trials oppress me, do I look to God for reinforcement and reassurance? When trials oppress me, do I look to God for reinforcement and reassurance? And question number five, what ways do I need to die to myself that I might be more useful to God? What ways do I need to die to myself that I might be more useful to God? The third question on the notes page of the sermon outline of the back of your bulletin was was a how-to given to me for me to respond to appropriately. The answer, similar to last week's but a little different, the answer is I must thoroughly examine myself 
while studying and meditating upon God's word to determine my answers to the above five questions. Lastly, the fourth question on the notes page of your bulletin was a time frame given how long the how-to might take to complete this task. As always, and you may be thinking that this is just a cop-out, but as always, this is the hardest question to answer because each of us must answer it for ourselves individually. But remember this, we are in a spiritual battle that never ceases to rage around us, even when we are not aware of the fierceness of the firefight. The devil loves to keep us sidelined, safely out of the fray. So it is of the essence to examine yourself sooner rather than later. Do you really only want to be a mere observer? Or would you rather be an active soldier in your Lord's army? Examine yourself today. Don't put it off. Let us pray. Oh God. Please help us to hunger and thirst for the truths of your word and through the light that it gives us, enable us to see and correct any areas of our life where we may ignoring your requirements of us. Make us ready and eager to serve you in all areas of daily life so that if and when you call us to a crucial campaign, we are ready, we are already in the habit of trusting and obeying you without hesitation. Help us to be more fervent prayer warriors and to keep track of your answers to our prayers and our prayer journals. For you know how forgetful we are and how encouraging it can be to review the history of how faithfully you have been in answering our prayers. When Satan causes trials and tribulations to increase, help us to look to you alone for the strength and courage to persevere and the the tenacity to stay in the fight especially when the devil is doing everything he can to demoralize us and everything seems to be against us. Lastly, we ask you to help us die to ourselves that we might become more useful to you so that you can deploy us where we are needed the most. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.